Welcome to Queer by Candlelight, hosted by Elizabeth Crane and Dahlia Kumar. Hi, my name's Elizabeth Crane, and he's lucky, you're lucky, I'm lucky, we're all lucky. And I'm Dahlia Kumar, and I've been turned into a white nude statue. And on this fourth episode of Queer by Candlelight, we will be discussing the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the 1975 film. We're also very, very excited to announce that we've invited a guest on for this episode. Hello, this is Adrian Swan coming to give another perspective as someone who identifies as non-binary on this film, which transcends the, bi- the binary completely. Yeah, it's very iconic. And we're definitely going to discuss how the film has meant a lot to a lot of non-gender conforming people, but also how its portrayal of Frank is definitely outdated. It's not great, but it's still iconic. So the Rocky Horror Picture Show was directed by Jim Sharman and written by Richard O'Brien and Jim Sharman. And it was based on the 1973 stage musical, The Rocky Horror Show, which ran in London and was so successful that they decided to adapt it into this iconic movie. The movie is also iconic because it's a parody of sci-fi and horror B-movies, especially Frankenstein, like that's the most obvious one. But there are many references throughout the movie, and the movie was also filmed at a filming location that a lot of Hammer horror films used. So films like Dracula or the, that type of like Hammer Studios film from Britain in that time period is actually filmed at the same castle, which is really cool. So the movie starts out with the song Science Fiction Double Feature, which is just a bunch of references to other like sci-fi and like horror B-movies, which are played over the opening credits with the iconic shot of the lips singing along. It's iconic. You see it everywhere. You see like a disembodied pair of lips and you're like, ah, Rocky Horror reference. Then we go to a wedding of Ralph Hapshat to Betty Monroe, and we learn through Ralph's conversation with Brad that Ralph and Betty met in Dr. Scott's classes. Janet then catches Betty's bouquet, and Ralph tells Brad that he could be next, which sets up the fact that Brad and Janet are a couple. After the wedding party disperses, um, we then see Brad propose to Janet in the song Damn It, Janet. And there's a large, giant billboard in the background of the cemetery showing that this takes place in Denton, Ohio. Get your billboard out of my cemetery! (laughs) As the song progresses, Brad and Janet enter the chapel, which is now being set up for a funeral, and the church owners begin singing background parts in a deadpan tone. And then at the end of the song, Brad and Janet decide to visit Dr. Scott uh, to tell him about their engagement since they also met in his classes. This kind of sets up the rest of the movie. Yeah. I love this song because not only is it a hilarious parody of straight culture, but it also takes place entirely in a cemetery and at a funeral. So even though Brad and Janet are like dancing around like super happy, everyone around them is like wearing black. They're really upset. And I think it really sets up this dynamic between Brad and Janet 
and these sort of like counterculture figures that they meet where Brad and Janet are just not aware of their surroundings ever. And they also, they don't fit in with the goths. They don't understand. They're and different. <laughs> I no, make this joke every episode, but they're they're not like other people. No, but the problem is they are. They're exactly like other people. And that is mm-hmm. the whole point of their character. Also, the people in the background are like Richard O'Brien, Tim Curry for like five seconds, and like Patricia Quinn, who are the actors who play the Transylvanians later. Also, can I just say that coming from Ohio, I think it's really funny that this movie is set in Ohio because like a fun Ohio trivia fact is that there is this giant billboard on the side of the highway that says hell is real. And so like the fact that there's this billboard placing this in Ohio, I just like that. I really think that's A+. Oh my god. The Ohio hell is real billboard? I did not know that was a thing, but that does make the Didn't Ohio billboard in the background much funnier. That's so funny. Oh, my God. So Brad and Janet are driving in the rain to get to Dr. Scott's house, and they notice lots of motorcyclists driving past them when suddenly they reach a dead end in the road. And Brad says he must have taken a wrong turn. But as he's turning around to get out of the dead end, the tire blows up. So they decide to go ask for help at a nearby castle they pass back down the road a few miles. As they walk back to the castle, they sing over at the Frankenstein place as they run through the rain to get to the castle. And as they approach, they see a figure of a man in the window who also sings a verse of the song. Also, the castle looks very mysterious, and there's a large glass dome in the center of it, which sets it apart from other gothic castles as it looks sort of futuristic but it does have a lovely keep out sign which does feel more typical of gothic castles you gotta have a keep out sign on your castle door the man from the window then opens the door after they knock and he's introduced as the butler riffraff i love that name for a butler so fun so fresh so slay (laughs) Um, Riff Raff invites Brad and Janet, um, while also being creepy and ominous. If you guys don't know what Riff Raff looks like... It's a parody of, like, sort of the assistant to the mad scientist. Mm, yeah. That makes sense. We then also see the maid Magenta being introduced, and she slides down the handrail. What a queen. <laughs> um, they then begin... One of the most iconic songs, the Time Warp, such a vibe. And then partway through the song, they enter a large room with a bunch of people wearing like tuxedos and like party hats and stuff. And it's seen that the castle is hosting the annual Transylvanian convention. During the song, we also see the character of Columbia, who does fun little tap dance. Um, she, she wears cool suspenders. I like her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love Columbia. At the end of the song, Janet tries to convince Brad to leave because she's, like, creeped out. And as she's backing up, she also she runs into the elevator. And then we see the iconic Dr. Frankenfurter standing. And he turns around dramatically. Janet then passes out. Well, this is very foolish behavior, I think we all can acknowledge. But it's also a perfect parody of what this movie is trying to parody. Because women in those, like, 50s sci-fi movies were always passing out for no reason. So, while it is 
such an odd choice. It's like exactly what it needs to be for this parody to work. No, it makes sense. <laughs> he then starts singing Sweet Transvestite and says that he'll help him. But first, he, they need to see his science experiment to make the perfect man, which is basically just a really hot man who wears nothing but golden underpants. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so at the end of the song, Riff Raff and Magenta start to take off all Brad and Janet's clothes instead of just their jackets, which is what Janet and Brad assume will happen. And Janet starts to protest, but Brad tells her not to worry about it for some reason. Why does he say that? Like... I still do not understand this man and him being just like, oh, yeah, they're just taking all our clothes off. You know, they're just these people, you know, let's be nice about it. Like, no, this is odd. This is weird behavior. You can admit that. It's okay. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like, Brad saying it's fine for them to take off all of our clothes, it's not. Maybe it's just... Uh, maybe it's a commentary about how men constantly put aside women's ver- worries and they and they think that they know what's happening, but when in reality they really don't, and then they just like belittle women. I don't know. <laughs> it could be a commentary on that, but I think you might be giving the movie too much credit. To be completely <laughs> honest with you, probably. You're right. Weird behavior. I just, why does he want to, why does he want to show himself off like that? I'm just saying, that's a little (laughs) odd. Oh, you want to show your body off to other men? Interesting. And you don't mind that your fiancé is getting shown off as well? So they're left in just their underwear and are pushed into the elevator with Riff Raff Magenta in Columbia, and the elevator goes up to Frank's lab, which we see is where the giant glass dome on top of the castle is and it's got a bunch of like giant greek statues with like speakers attached to them and like it's covered in pink tile it's just really iconic like if you're gonna be a mad scientist get this lab honestly Mm -hmm. in the lab frank introduces himself properly to brad and janet and announces that today is the day his creature will be born He then gives a speech to the assembled Transylvanians who have also come up to the lab and are gathered on a balcony that, once again, this lab just has a balcony. Great. Love it. And he gives a speech about how he has found the secret to creating life. He dramatically rips a sheet off a piece of equipment, revealing a human form wrapped in bandages in a tank. There's then some, you know science with like giant air quotes where lots of like levers are pulled and there's like lightning crashes and frank colors the water in the tank into a pride flag which is not science but i love it it's great this is what i imagine stem majors doing you know like chemistry lab they just science in quotation marks and stuff happens I agree. Um, I would be a STEM major if doing science was this camp. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) So valid. So valid. And then at the end of the science, his creature comes to life. And it's a blonde muscular guy named Rocky Horror, who is apparently hot. But, like, honestly, I'm not seeing it. But, like, maybe that's my problem. I don't know. He has abs. 
He does have abs. Yeah. Is this what people are attracted to in a man? Perhaps. I could not tell you the answer to that. Have to think upon it. Rocky starts singing the Sword of Damocles about how, even though his life has just started, he has a really bad feeling about this whole situation. And during the song, Rocky's just running away and Frank is chasing him, but it's very campy, so it's fun. <laughs> Frank then catches up to Rocky and scolds him for running away. He also gives Rocky a bunch of exercise equipment as a birthday gift and then sings, I can make you a man, which is just about how hot Frank thinks muscular men are. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there is a point to this song, but um, I don't know. He's kind of just like, men are hot. Muscles. I think it's just gay. It's so gay. <laughs> it's camp. It is. It's really like camp. Like when he's like pumping his arm up and down with those weights. <laughs> like eye candy. Yeah. I know a lot of times in our modern day when we were like it's camp it's kind of a joke but this is actual camp mm -hmm. so as frank and rocky near the freezer an alarm on the freezer starts going off and eddie rides out of the freezer on a motorcycle which is so out of nowhere but i love it <laughs> it's never explained in great detail in the movie but basically the situation is that eddie is an ex of both frank and columbia who when Frank grew bored of him, was put in the freezer, and half of his brain was taken out and given to Rocky in order to animate him. So Eddie sings Hot Patootie and rides around the lab on his motorcycle, and everyone's getting super into it, including like all the Transylvanian like background dancers on the balcony, and like Columbia, and even Magenta and Riff Raff are like dancing in the freezer. And Frank is really jealous about this whole situation. So he chases after Eddie with a pickaxe and kills him because he's jealous that Eddie's song is getting more more vibes from the crowd. I mean, just straight up, it's a better song than I Can Make You a Man. It's certainly catchier. <laughs> so, like, I can't blame the people for that. It's true. Then Frank sings a song of I Can Make You a Man that also transitions into a Here Comes the Bride theme as everyone throws flower petals on Frank and Rocky and they go into Frank's bedroom to do to do whatever they want to do. <laughs> Activities. Activities. Extracurricular. Activities. <laughs> um, Brad and Janet are then separated into different bedrooms as well. Then, Frank comes into Janet's room, disguised as Brad, and he talks her into having sex, although she's initially hesitant. We'll talk more about this in the analysis section, because it really isn't consensual, considering that he has to co convince her, and she also says no several times before she finally says yes. In the lab, Riff Raff and Magenta stick a lit candelabra into Rocky's face, causing him to flee. The scene seems a bit random, but it connects back to the Frankenstein inspiration as it's a main plot point of the James Whale Frankenstein-like classic movie that the monster is afraid of fire and that's its only weakness. So this scene is a callback to the Frankenstein inspiration that Rocky Horror is essentially Frankenstein's monster. So Frank goes into Brad's room disguised as Janet and talks him into having sex using pretty much identical dialogue to what he said to Janet earlier. 
And then Riff Raff and Magenta call into the room on like a communication system they have set up all over the castle to tell Frank that Rocky has escaped and is running around being chased by the castle dogs. Janet takes the elevator up to the lab and asks a series of rhetorical questions to thin air about how she has gotten into this situation. I kind of love this scene because who who is she talking to? She's just having a moment. And you know what? Same. Such a mood. <laughs> Me every day. How am I here? <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> so she messes around with the monitor that Riff Raff and Magenta used to talk to Frank in the previous scene and sees Frank and Brad having clearly just finished having sex. And this distresses her even further as she realized that Brad has also cheated on her. She then hears the sound of Rocky crying and finds him underneath a sheet in the tank. And she comforts him and she offers to bandage his hand and then makes the most comedic face possible as the narration says that she has decided to seduce him. I don't know why, but the expression she makes is very camp. (laughs) (laughs) So Magenta and Columbia watch what Janet is up to on the monitor's place in the room And they provide the backing vocals as Janet sings Touch a Touch a Touch Me. And she and Rocky have sex. And it's also implied that Magenta and Columbia do as well. So, lesbian rights. Frank, Brad, and Riff Raff enter the lab. And Frank whips Riff Raff for chasing Rocky out. Then, Riff Raff notices that Dr. Scott, Brad and Janet's teacher, is outside the castle. Riffraff accidentally reveals that he's an alien by calling Dr. Scott an earthling. Frank then accuses Brad of coming to the castle on purpose instead of as a coincidence as a result of their car breaking down because Brad knows Dr. Scott, and Frank says that Dr. Scott works for the government investigating UFOs. Then Frank pulls a lever and Dr. Scott, who's in a wheelchair, is dragged into the room by some sort of magnetic force and eventually crashes through the tile wall of the lab. There, Dr. Scott's surprised to see Brad, but Frank says that he's just pretending to be surprised. Dr. Scott then says that he's there to try to find Eddie, who's his nephew. Frank then discovers Rocky and Janet hiding under the sheet and is very upset that Rocky has been cheating on him. To end this amazing scene, Magenta then rings a gong and announces that dinner is ready. I do kind of love the absolute chaos of this scene. scene. There is so much going on. Almost none of it makes logical sense. But the way it's delivered, you're just like, yes, of course. This makes (laughs) so much sense. Oh, brilliant. So at the dinner scene... Everyone's acting really awkward and mad at each other because obviously they are. Also, I just have to point out that there's a celery and a cucumber in various spaces on the table as if they were floral arrangements for some reason. And every time I see it, it just cracks me up. Like, those are not decorations, but whatever. (laughs) So Frank forces everyone to sing Rocky Happy Birthday, but then stops them all before they can get through the whole song. And Dr. Scott asks again about Eddie, and Frank implies that the roast they are all eating is Eddie's body, causing Columbia to storm off, and everyone except Rocky, who maybe doesn't understand speech except when he's singing, it's a little unclear, to stop eating. 
but Rocky just keeps eating because I don't think he knows what's going on. <laughs> we love a little cannibalism moment. It's basically the plot of Hannibal. Yeah, no, for real. Then Dr. Scott sings the song Eddie about how Eddie has always been rebellious, but had sent Dr. Scott a note saying that he was about to be killed by evil aliens. And I do think this song is underrated. Like, people don't like this song, but I think it's so catchy and fun. At the end of the song, Frank rips the tablecloth off the table, revealing that the table is hollow and has had Eddie's body in it the whole time. Janet screams and runs into Rocky's arms, causing Frank to go into a rage as Rocky is cheating on him. (laughs) Frank sings the song Planet Schmanet Janet, or maybe it's called You'd Better Wise Up, um, conflicting reports on this one, um, while chasing Janet up the stairs into the lab, with Brad and Dr. Scott following behind to make sure he doesn't hurt her. In the lyrics of the song, Frank reveals he's invented a sonic transducer, a device that could send them to a different location, or perhaps even a different time. But Frank says he has no interest in sending them to a different planet when Janet screams about this. After Janet tries to hit Frank because he's grabbing at her, Frank turns Janet, Brad, and Dr. Scott into statues using a device called the Medusa. Then, Columbia comes into the room and says that she's tired of Frank using people and that he has no regard for anyone but himself, so he turns her and Rocky into statues as well. Then, Magenta complains to Frank about how she wants to return to Transylvania, their home planet. Frank sort of brushes her off, which leads to Magenta and Riff Raff storming off. We then shift to the floor show where Frank reanimates the statues of Columbia, Rocky, Brad, and Janet one at a time to sing Rose Tint My World, and they're also now wearing matching costumes and weird makeup. It's such a vibe. The makeup's kind of bad, though. It's kind of bad. Like, are we going to talk about it? It's it's not, like, good makeup. No. But I guess that's the point. Yeah. Like, they're not necessarily supposed to look pretty because like the corsets they have on are backwards like the back of the corsets in the front you're right i never realized that i just thought it was some like cool like lace up front corset no they're backwards right yeah huh it's i think it's going back to the camp theme of the movie Mm -hmm. that they're not necessarily supposed to look good or glamorous. They're more supposed to look like the specific aesthetic and idea of what a glamorous person should look like taken mm-hmm. to an extreme. But also the makeup, it's bad. I just feel like Frank doesn't want any of them to look better than he does. Like, Well, he certainly doesn't want Janet to look better than he does because yeah. everyone else, he's like messing with their costumes before the floor show starts and he just sticks his tongue out at Janet and walks past her. Can we talk real quickly about Brad- Brad's leg quiver? Yeah, and- we could absolutely talk about Brad's leg quiver. <laughs> I just think that's so iconic. Every time I watch it, I'm like, damn, I don't know how that man does it. Because it just looks so, because he's like so unsure of himself and then he does that leg quiver and you're like wow this man this man is so bi and gay i love it yes (laughs) i have a special soft spot for him in my heart like look at that little gay man figure things out on his own oh he's getting there and we respect him for that yeah he's trying an asshole yeah he was trying genuinely he he wanted to understand 
he went into things with an open mind. Yeah. Did he? He really did. He, he really like, did. He was like, it doesn't yeah. matter if they take off my clothes. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> you know, he, just, like, he doesn't try seem, it. like, xenophobic at all, honestly. That's true. That's true. Respectful. Then Frank enters the floor show from a staircase that lowers out of a backdrop of the RKO Tower, which is another nod to, like, old sci-fi movies. Frank then sings Whatever Happened to Faye Ray about how he's always longed for the glamour of the female characters in the movies. At the end of the song, he jumps into a pool, and the floor of the pool is Michelangelo's The Creation of Adam from the Sistine Chapel. The other four characters join in the pool and sing Don't Dream It, Be It. Meanwhile, Dr. Scott has a monologue about not wanting to give in to the decadence that the other characters have given in to, but eventually he fails and reveals fishnets and heels underneath the blanket he has over his lap. I think that's so fun. I just love watching the floor show and everyone's singing and then there's just Dr. Scott in the background and he has his like one leg kicking up. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, this entire scene is incredibly iconic. Like, we already talked about the costumes, but the visuals of the pool and the chorus line, they all have made just, like, such an imprint on people's consciousness. This entire scene, because, like, we've separated it into separate songs to describe it, but it really is kind of like one song, is so incredibly iconic, well done, emotionally resonant but also hilarious a hundred percent then the characters get out of the pool and have a group dance number called wild and untamed thing in the middle of the song riffraff and magenta burst into the room and they're now dressed as aliens in black and gold outfits and interrupt the song revealing that riffraff has decided to overthrow frank and become leader of their mission Frank says that he can explain and then sings the iconic ballad, I'm Going Home, which doesn't explain anything, but shows off how great of a singer Tim Curry is. Like, honestly, this whole, this whole film, like, Tim Curry's expressions and singing ways, amazing. I don't know how he did it. It's just so good. Yeah, and this was his first movie, too. Like, he was a stage actor before this, and he'd not really done any film and sometimes I think that's a detriment to actors because they do tend to overact. Mm-hmm. But um, hello, we need Frankenfurter <laughs> to overact. That's the point. No, it was perfect for Frankenfurter. Absolutely. Tim Curry carries this movie and I cannot imagine a different actor doing it. Like I know other actors do it in stage performances and they kill it. Like every time I see a stage performance of a different actor playing Frankenfurter, I'm like, wow, they did such a good job. But like in the movie version... Tim Curry is Frankenfurter, and it's such perfect casting. He really carries the film. Mm-hmm. During the song, Frank imagines that the audience is suddenly full of people applauding how good of a singer he is. He's a, he's a pretty good singer. It's true. Can I just say that like that scene where like the audience is suddenly full reminds me of one specific Criminal Minds episode with the puppets and the guy I think there's thinks there's an audience when he's doing his puppet show and then actually he's just like insane all along and no one's there. <laughs> I haven't watch seen Criminal Minds. But... It's a really good episode. Spencer Reed is great in that one. But like that's like I love that trope. Yeah. And you don't, like, know if the audience is real or not when there's, like, a liminal space there. Mm-hmm. It's great. Ooh, liminal space. We're using the fancy vocab words today. 
So at the end of the song, Riff Raff says that actually Frank will not be going home, as he's going to kill him instead, revealing that the trident-looking thing he's been holding is actually a laser gun. Columbia screams, causing Riff Raff to misfire and hit her instead of Frank. Then Frank freaks out and starts trying to climb the curtain to get away, but unfortunately he is killed anyway, and it's so sad, and the curtain falls on top of him. But Rocky then puts Frank's body on his back and climbs the RKO Tower, which is a direct reference to King Kong climbing the RKO Tower. And it goes back to Frank saying he wanted to be Feyre, the female lead in King Kong, as he has now essentially assumed that role through this scene. Rufraff tries to hit Rocky with the laser gun, but he seems to be immune. However, eventually the RKO tower collapses into the pool, killing Rocky. Damn, he only got to live like one day. Yeah, he was only alive uh, approximately seven hours, according to his lyrics in Roast in My World. <laughs> Ripped to a real one. Literally. <laughs> Riffraff and Magenta agree to let Brad, Janet, and Dr. Scott go, but they tell them to leave quickly because they're about to beam the entire castle into space. Magenta then has a monologue about how much she misses Transylvania and reveals that the time warp is a traditional dance of their alien culture. The house blasts off into space, flying through a rainbow, hmm, and, <laughs> and leaves Brad, Janet, and Dr. Scott injured from being so close to a rocket launch, but alive. Some versions of the movie then also include the song Superheroes. Uh, which reflects on the trauma that they just went through. But for some reason, the song has been cut from a lot of versions in the past couple of years. Then the credits roll over a sad reprise of science fiction double feature. We hope that this was more interesting than the Wikipedia summary. So true. Join us after a short break as we analyze what makes this film so iconic. Hi, this is Elizabeth Crane just chiming in to say please rate our podcast five stars and leave a written review if you have a spare second. This is the metric that a lot of podcast apps use to track which podcasts are being listened to a lot, so we would really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you. Welcome back from the break. We are now going to analyze topics that we think are worth discussing about this movie, and there are many. <laughs> this movie has had such an impact on the queer community, and it's been used as sort of a safe space for queer people, especially when it was released in 1975. I mean, that's only a few years removed from events like Stonewall, so people were not necessarily feeling safe in queer spaces like bars. But police weren't really going to raid a movie theater. I mean, it's just a movie showing. So this could provide a space for people to be themselves. It's also worth noting that this movie has one of the biggest traditions of audience participation with things like callbacks and shadow casts. The callbacks that are popular now seem to have started very naturally with people just like yelling things in the theater to make people laugh until they caught on and spread. The tradition apparently started several months after the midnight showings began with a patron yelling, buy an umbrella, you cheap bitch, after Janet uses the newspaper to shield herself from the rain when the car breaks down. <laughs> the Waverly Theater in New York is one of the most famous locations to offer midnight showings going back to the 70s and is where a lot of modern Rocky Horror traditions started, like these callbacks. 
Okay, well, I know at least for me, like, I remember wanting to watch this movie, you know, when I was a young middle schooler and I was like, I want to watch this movie because I have not seen things with gay people in them. And I, I am a totally straight person. I just, why do I want to watch this movie with, like, gay people in it? I don't know. Remains to be seen. But I just remember, like, wanting to watch it so badly and, like, having to, like, track down where I could, like, find it so I could watch it. Because, I don't know, I just really wanted to see it. Yeah, I had a very similar experience where I was in middle school and I was like, yes, I, a straight person, am so desperate to watch this movie. And I remember I watched, like, a bootleg of it on YouTube, like, police sirens start as I admit to illegally watching this movie, but I watched a bootleg of this movie on YouTube, like, under the covers when I was supposed to be asleep. Um, because I was absolutely terrified of my parents figuring out I was gay. So I definitely have, like, very formative memories of being like, ah, yes, this piece of queer media is, like, the iconic piece of queer media. For me, it came through my obsession with Emma Watson, which is already a little sus. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was just going through, like, her discography and stuff and like um I had also read the book The Perks of Being a Wallflower and she's in that movie and in the movie they do a whole Rocky Horror play and after I watched that I was like damn like I need to watch this but since I was still living with my parents and as I do I just read the Wikipedia page (laughs) stop reading Wikipedia pages and thinking it's the same as the movie did that Wikipedia page convey to you how iconic Tim Curry is no but I was like wow like I understand what's happening in the movie (laughs) that's what I that's what I did for a lot of like horror and like a lot of like random things growing up is just if I couldn't find access to it somehow I would just read the Wikipedia page so at least I'd feel like I understood it (laughs) the first time I watched it was with Elizabeth it was like earlier this year and she was like you haven't watched it yet I was like no I read the Wikipedia page though (laughs) it's not the same But I finally watched it and um, my my world has been changed i you know, when we say that this was more interesting than the... We hope that this was more interesting than the Wikipedia summary. It is. Watching it is even more interesting than our rendition. But, yeah. yeah. That's true. <laughs> yeah. I definitely introduced Dahlia to this. I was like, you have to see it. And now all three of us are going together in, like, a group costume to go see it. Uh, so fun, this Halloween. So, clearly, my attempts to indoctrinate Dahlia has paid off. <laughs> I'm also glad that you mentioned the perks of being a wallflower because I really do think that like brought it to like a more like the audience like especially like I don't know people our age like Mm -hmm. like, that was a really big movie I really enjoyed the movie and Mm -hmm. the book when I was like younger and depressing though (laughs) it is the book is like a masterpiece yeah absolute 100% fucking masterpiece but I I was like interested in it like that's probably how I first like heard about it and then I was like I was like hmm that's suspicious let's watch that like i do think it like brought it into like because like i would i don't how was i supposed to know that they do like the theater thing where the people actually go in the theater and like do all that i didn't know that existed because it wasn't like in my local suburbia yeah mm-hmm. they don't really do these showings in like rural areas very often as i think 
all of us are from pretty like suburban or more like rural like small town vibes the the showings they don't exist in most places in most places yeah yeah but now we live in a large city and there are many and we go to them every year just like the perks of the, being a wallflower may have brought this to a wider audience in modern day this movie was what brought different subcultures like queer people the a lot of the like punk fashion movements have been attributed to starting with this movie with a lot of the outfits that are worn in it this movie was what brought that to more of a mainstream society where it could be talked about because these showings slowly became normalized because they happened so frequently in the 70s when this movie came out that people started to accept things like these fashion statements as being normal. No, 100%. I also think it's interesting. I was reading about how the costume designer for Rocky Horror like didn't analyze or didn't research like earlier sci-fi movies and like things to see what kind of things they wore there. Rather they did go for like uh other sub for subcultures that aren't super mainstream. Mhm. Yeah, I mean, the ripped fishnets, the leather jackets, the fashion statements are iconic. Mm-hmm. 100%. Even, like, Frankenfurter coming out wearing a lingerie. Like, oh, oh it's good. It's good. I remember I was showing my friend um, the floor show because I was trying to explain the costume I was doing for Halloween. And then, like, Brad came out and he was like, a straight man too and i was like yeah okay but brad is not not straight straight. brad is definitely bi Mm -hmm. yeah 100 percent. i was trying to explain to him rocky horror and he was just so confused i was like you just need to watch it to understand another topic that is definitely needs to be addressed is how the depiction of frankenfurter is definitely outdated now like almost 50 years after this movie was originally released it has not aged particularly well it definitely was revolutionary when it came out but now it has sort of fallen behind the times the character of frank is not necessarily trans i think uh frank like says that he identifies as like a drag queen more but he can certainly be interpreted that way and often is interpreted that way with more positive connotations by members of the trans community. And Frankenfurter has definitely been like recognized by certain members of the trans community as like an icon to them, which is great. But unfortunately, the character does have many traits that trans villains in horror movies also have. And the character could be seen as contributing to the very common problem of transphobia in horror movies. Because trans people or people that could be interpreted as trans but aren't necessarily like stated to be in a movie are extremely commonly villainized in horror movies, including Norman Bates in Psycho and Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. I mean, this is a really common issue that definitely has been brought up in most like queer horror analysis. And in Rocky Horror, Frank definitely fits into the stereotype of a trans person as like the killer in a horror movie because Frank kills Eddie pretty much completely unprovoked making him really similar to the stereotype 
And also, Frank is depicted as a sexual predator when he has unconsensual sex with Brad and Janet, which is another negative stereotype of trans people. Yeah, I don't know. It just, like, it really sucks because all of these movies, like, Psycho and Silence of the Lambs, like, they're really good movies, and you have a time, good time watching them, and then you just realize, like, the little bits that, like, get at you, and it's just, like... Like, it's just contributing to, like, that stereotype, that harmful stereotype, and it really just, it does, it can put a damper on things. But, I don't know, I feel like at the end of the day, like, this movie defies gender, in all cases, like, you know, these people aren't from Earth, they don't have, like, the same gender binary if they have a gender binary. So, like, who's to say, like, that any of it can be represented with what we see as the gender binary here i don't know yeah exactly i really agree that the main message of the movie is that people should be who they are and i think ultimately that makes it more celebratory of trans people than it is harmful and i think it helps that frank at the end of the day is not the villain of this movie frank is the protagonist and the audience is meant to sympathize with frank so i think that also helps portray him in less of a negative way even though it does still fall into these stereotypes i mean yeah it would be it would be a little like you know he's a character he has flaws to him and not so flaws but you know i do think he is like a very well-rounded character overall and that it's better than just like making somebody like a one-note transphobic villain which happens quite often in popular movies I was just going to say, I just think it's really interesting just seeing everything written down about what happened in the film. Because when you're watching, I feel like you get so caught up in the camp and glamour of it that, like, even when, like, Eddie gets killed, you're like, ah, Eddie died. And then, like, you go to the next song or, like, the next scene. And it's just, it's just so weird seeing it written out. Because then you, like, you're like, wow, that's a man just died you know oh yeah like when you're watching the movie you're like you're not caring that eddie has been murdered because it goes straight into like a new song it doesn't linger on it you're like oh too bad but if you like actually think about the plot you're like oh he just like pickaxed a man to death (laughs) literally like he it's really funny to look at the plot because i feel like that's also not the only plot twist that looks like that like they're also just like also we've been aliens the whole time with no lead up and you're just like i mean sure i want to know what do people from transylvania think about the movie (laughs) does transylvania exist anymore isn't it oh does it not anymore i think it's like a region in romania yeah yeah, it's a Romanian region, so it's not a country anymore. It's like a inside Romania. <laughs> I don't know. Also, I learned from my mother the other day that I have distant ancestry in Transylvania, <laughs> and all I could think about was this movie. I was, it was meant to be. Yeah, yeah. obviously. <laughs> That's why I'm gay. Yeah. You know how scientists are always like, we got to figure out what makes people gay genetically. It's, it's that. Transylvania. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 
so another issue that has made this movie look more outdated over time is that pretty much all the main characters are white, just, like, across the board. A lot of the, like, background Transylvanians with the, like, tuxedos and party hats are people of color, and they're specifically supposed to seem like they're sort of from all walks of life. Like, there's also a lot of, like, older people and younger people, that sort of thing. But they're definitely background characters with, like, no lines. So that's, like, very concerning from a modern lens because that is just, like, not acceptable casting to Mm -hmm. have all of the main characters be white. Yeah. And, like, have the background characters be people of color or aliens of color. That's one thing I really like about like seeing like shadow cast and stuff in person is because a lot of the time like there's is a more focus these days now on like bringing people of color like into it and yeah. it's always a lot more enjoyable. Yeah. Than it like it, if if I saw a shadow cast and it was just like entirely like white and basic and you know like you know you could just know if the vibe isn't there. Yeah. But no, I totally agree. I like shadow castings and it's just because this movie is such a huge huge phenomenon in queer culture at least in America you and know, more so in Great Britain. In, oh okay. Yeah. In Great That makes sense. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Especially since it was also filmed in Britain. in Britain. Yeah. So in Amer in like western areas. Like it it is nice to see shadow castings just cuz there is such a huge queer population queer POC population um and just seeing some representation of myself in like such a big queer phenomenon. Yeah, totally. I know the shadow cast that we go see every year definitely has people of color in it and it is great to see that because it is pretty alarming to look at this movie and be like, "Huh, that's just a lot of white people. <laughs> Although it was in Ohio in, like, what, like, the 70s, so kind of tracks. Ohio. Yeah. Probably, I don't know, is Denton, Ohio a real place? Yeah, it is, I think. Where the hell is it? I wonder how they chose that specific Okay, location. no, it's, like, not a place. There's a place called Denton Hollow, Ohio. That sounds creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It looks like rural Ohio at the very least. Like, at least from the movie. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't know. They may have aliens of color, but I guess they didn't have any people of color. So, something that's really fun to look at is the differences between the stage musical and the movie. Because they are fairly similar. They're not particularly different. Uh, But there were a few changes. So one thing that changed was that in the stage musical, the actress who plays Magenta also plays Trixie the Usherette, who sings both science fiction double feature and the reprise of that song at the very end of the musical. And this caused some behind-the-scenes drama in production, apparently, because in the movie, Patricia Quinn, who plays Magenta, wanted to sing the song in the movie because she was in the cast of the musical and loved singing it. And it was actually a condition of her agreeing to play the role in the movie was that she got to sing this song. But then the compromise that was reached was that Richard O'Brien would sing the song, but it is her lips that are shown while the song plays. Do we know why she wasn't allowed to sing the song? Not that I've ever heard. It's just interesting. This is just kind of like lore that I feel like I don't even know where I heard this. Like... Rocky Horror fans just, like, say this all the time. They're like, did you know? 
Mm. Why did Richard O'Brien sing this song? If Patricia Quinn wanted it so bad. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like something's going on there. Was there drama? <laughs> Was he the drama? We need the expose. <laughs> also in the stage musical, the same actor is double cast as Eddie in Act 1 and Dr. Scott in Act 2. So it makes a little more sense for them to be related because they would look the same. So that's why they're like uncle and nephew. Lastly, in the stage musical, Brad has a solo called Once in a While that he sings after he realizes Janet has cheated on him about how relationships have rough rough patches sometimes, but they'll get over it. And I definitely see why it was cut from the movie because it's kind of like slow paced Mm -hmm. and... It's right when the movie is starting to get to, like, the climax when everyone's, like, fighting at each other and everyone's, like, really has a lot of tension. So it does kind of, like, slow the plot down, and I'm guessing that's why it was cut. Is this, like, before or after he also cheats on Janet? After. Okay. (laughs) He's just like, oh, you know, we cheated on each other, so I guess it, like, cancels out, like, PEMDAS or something. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God, it's just, like, PEMDAS? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, honestly, like, he doesn't seem that torn up about it. No. I I mean, I don't think he cares that much. And then Janet's all like, oh, my God, like, I can't believe Brad and Frank. But at the same time, like, girly pop, look at you. (laughs) You You did Rocky. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying. I had such an urge to just sing "Touch It, Touch It, Touch Me," and I was like, "Can't resist the urge." Not the copyright infringement. <laughs> not on this podcast. We do not have copyright infringement here. So there's also a sequel to this film called "Shock Treatment," uh, but since it's not like a direct sequel and only has like a couple recurring characters and actors from Rocky Horror. Most people don't like it very much or feels that it, like, does not connect well to this film. So it gets overlooked a lot and has not gained the same cult following as Rocky Horror. Yeah, no, this is, like, the first time I've heard of shock treatment. I've never seen that. So, fun, nerdy moment here. The song that Rocky sings, The Sword of Damocles, is referencing a story told by the Roman orator Cicero about a courtier in Syracuse, Sicily, in the 4th century BCE, so actually like a long time before Cicero. Um, And in the story, according to Cicero, Syracuse was ruled by a king named Dionysius, and Damocles was flattering Dionysius about how lucky he was to be king and to be so wealthy. Dionysius offered to switch places with Damocles so that he could see how lucky he really was, but to show Damocles how dangerous it was to be king when you have so many enemies as the most powerful person in the state, he hung a sword over Damocles's head by one horsehair. And after a little while, Damocles begged Dionysius to switch back positions because he was so worried the sword would kill him, showing that those with power rarely enjoy it because having power is dangerous. Hmm. Love a little classical moment. I'm just trying to think, like, the position of power Rocky has right now. Is it just being hot? Is it having Frankenfurters? Um, Got him on his little finger. Like, on his, like <laughs> wrapped around his little finger. Um, is Because, like, we also see still at the same time how it's... Because it's, like, does Rocky really have any power? Because I feel like Frankenfurter has more power over him maybe he's saying that 
Frankenfurter is the king in the situation, and he's the one who's suddenly been thrust into the spotlight, and he feels that he's now in danger because of it. I mean, he's literally been alive for only a few hours. Like he doesn't he's even been know- alive for a few seconds at this point. Okay, yeah. <laughs> he woke up and he was like, Damocles? I know this. But like overall, like how is he going to have any kind of sense about who he is? Like he's not. He doesn't know shit. He's like, a child. Yeah, like <laughs> I feel like we need to talk about how this man is implied to not be able to speak, but he can sing. That's and okay. when he does sing, it's about obscure like classical Roman like orator. <laughs> It is camp, you're right. Makes sense. Um, music is a language like no other. Music transcends boundaries. <laughs> also, can I just say, I have so much respect for this actor, Peter Hinwood, but um, I do not believe this man can act, sing, or dance in any way. <laughs> like, he's a king and a legend, but... um. Why was he cast, to be honest? Because of the body. Sure. Mm-hmm. Honestly, you're And the vibe. Right. And the, the gay vibe. vibes. The vibes, yeah. Not everyone can pull off a tiny, golden, shiny underwear. Yeah. Yeah, that does take effort. Mm-hmm. You're right. I shouldn't have doubted. I shouldn't have doubted. <laughs> but I love watching him in Wild and Untamed Thing. Because the other four actors in that kick line are, like, full, like, high kicks. They're going all out. Mm -hmm. They're clearly, like, covered in water and probably freezing. But, like, they're going for it. This man is barely moving. (laughs) Barely (laughs) moving. Well, how is he going to know what's going on? He's never been in a kick line before. (laughs) And you think Brad and Janet are in so many kick lines in their free time? Well, at least they would know how to move. He was born, like, a few hours ago. He doesn't no have one taught him over his limbs yet, you know? <laughs> but he does know how to lift weights, obviously. Yeah. Well, Frankenfurter Fra- showed him. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah. There was a whole song for that purpose. <laughs> <laughs> how I imagine him is like a newborn giraffe. Trying to understand how long their legs are and how long their neck is. But it's him, and he's trying to understand how hot he is. Oh, yeah. Which is clearly a struggle. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So also, speaking of classical mythology, (laughs) because I'm a nerd, I just feel the urge to point out that the Greek statues in the background of Frankenfurter's lab have lipstick on and red nail polish, proving that Frank knew about polychromy back in the 70s, and he knew that those Greek statues were brightly painted. And he agreed with those theories Mm -hmm. because he's an icon. Honestly, though, like, isn't there the, like, theory that, you know, he can, like, control, like, you know, time machine? You know what I'm saying? He does. He has a time machine. So, like, maybe he went back to ancient Rome, which is where he got all of his knowledge from about the statues and about the sword. Or even just calling him Medusa. You know? Yeah, oh. like, maybe he, like, hung out and partied with them in, like, some symposia. Oh, Frankenfurter would be at the symposia. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, that's what I would like to imagine. This yeah. is where he, like, got all these ideas from. And oh was like, God. we need Brilliant to bring... Th- theory. We need to, like, bring these, like, camp ideas back into fashion. Yeah, because ancient Greece was camp. Totally. 100%. So, the other day, 
on national television, Susan Sarandon, who plays Janet, came out as bi. Oh my god, I didn't know that. It was like very recently. Like okay. fucking iconic. <laughs> Love. That makes sense because like she has so many queer roles, especially like I mean, The Hunger, but also Rocky Horror. Yeah. <laughs> I do think that's like one of the most <laughs> queer movies out there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so she was in Rocky Horror. She played an iconic queer vampire lady in the movie The Hunger, which maybe we'll do an episode on soon. It's definitely on the list, but it just proves that Susan Sarandon has played so many iconic queer roles in, like, specifically horror movies, which is so fun. Mm -hmm. Richard O'Brien, who wrote the musical In Place Riff Raff, has also come out as transgender and, and says that he identifies as third gender. Um, but he's also said some really transphobic things about trans women not being real women and has tried to clarify somewhat what he's meant, but there's a, that he meant that there's a difference between a cis woman and a trans woman and that he never meant the comment to be mean spirited, but it's still weird. Still weird. Still weird. (laughs) Still very uncomfortable. Not acceptable. Yeah. But he both identifies as trans and is also over 70. So there's like some moral gray area um, than him just being super transphobic because of the time period he grew up in, even though that is still like a really transphobic comment. Yeah, I was like very upset when I was doing research and I was like, oh, the writer's like horrible. Cool. Great. No, it's just like, can somebody educate this person? Yeah. Like, but also, you know, people shouldn't have to be advocating for themselves to, like, for basic human decency. No. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's it's frustrating. Yeah. 100%. I did think it was kind of funny when people interviewed him about this. He was like, I am not J.K. Rowling. Like, he literally <laughs> specifically said J.K. Rowling. He was like, that's not me. At I least. I would never do that. She's become the face. Of transphobia. Of transphobia. Yeah. <laughs> like, how did he go from beloved children's book author to face of transphobia? Like, you're telling me you wrote a whole wizarding world, mm-hmm. but somehow a gender binary exists. Yeah. And is static. Yeah. Gender binary. Don't believe that. Disgusting. Yeah. I mean, I guess her books, like, when you read into them, it's, it's, l- it's, not it's a great. little sus. It's not great. Yeah. Also, the, like, anti-Semitic aspects of the books. Uh, are disgusting. Yeah. Ugh. Not it. Also, Cho Chang. Those are... T- oh, and the HIV allegory with yeah, Thomas Lupin. The, yeah. mm-hmm. There's so many We don't have time to unpack this. <laughs> There's a lot. Anyway, Richard O'Brien... Not JKR. Not JK Rowling. Is transgender. Also has said some not great things. Very hey. unfortunate. Glee has an episode... That is based around Rocky Horror, and um, it's very fun. <laughs> it's very fresh. It's kind of bad, um, in my opinion. I don't know. Maybe other people love it. It's bad. It is <laughs> atrocious. It makes my skin crawl it's in like certain scenes. They're trying. To, it, it has straight vibes to it. Yes, a hundred percent. In a lot of Glee is very much straight vibes, even though which is weird because it's a Ryan Murphy production. It's a Ryan Murphy production, and like I do think that it has, like, with Kurt being one of the first openly gay characters in media, it's definitely like it's definitely added to the queer 
space and everything, but it's still it's still weird. Hear yeah. us out. Yes, but also no. <laughs> I have a theory that Ryan Murphy and these shows are just a very specific energy of homophobic homosexual. Mm. And that is what I'm sticking with for Glee. Like, is it homosexual? In a lot of cases, yes. Like, I'm sorry, Sue Sylvester in general. And then also just like being obsessed with like Kurt's relationship. Oh, with Blaine? (laughs) Like, what is that? It is both homophobic and so homosexual. And then there's that one scene with like Mercedes and Kurt and Blaine. And then like Mercedes is going through it. She's not really focusing on what they're saying. And like when she's trying to focus, it just goes gay, 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 gay. Oh, look, a little purse fell out of my mouth. <laughs> oh, that's where that quote came from? Yeah. Oh, oh, this is bad. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Anyways. there's an episode where they're, like, doing a production of Rocky Horror, and also it incorporates songs from Rocky Horror throughout the episode. Yeah. And the energy is rancid and vile. It's so interesting. It was so interesting to watch it after having watched Rocky Horror because before you're like, ah, oh, this is just glee. And then you watch Rocky Horror and then you watch it and you're like, this is glee, but worse. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think you could make glee worse. <laughs> it's just because, like, you understand the nuances of Rocky Horror and then they totally change everything. Um, for example, the touch a touch a touch me song um where we see um emma pillsbury undress will shoots schuster and it's just and then um we we have um naya rivera's character and santana. yeah santana and damn it britney santana and britney just watching in the background and it's just so weird <laughs> it's so weird and it's it's also, the fact that Finn is implied to be Brad also in that scene. Yeah. And it, but it's like, the teacher is like Janet, but then Will is Rocky. Yeah. It makes then, no fucking sense. Because, like, in the actual production, Rachel Berry was Janet. So they had Rachel Berry and Emma Pillsbury. Emma Pillsbury is a teacher. Rachel Berry is a student. But there's also some of this... Rachel Berry's weird. Um, we playing, know. <laughs> playing Janet. And then they have Finn, a student, playing Brad. And then they have John Stamos in there playing Eddie. And then they have two people playing Rocky, which is Will Schuster and Touch Sam. a touch a touch me scene. Yeah. Um, and then Will Schuster and Sam are, Sam's a student, and they're both playing Rocky. And it's just really weird. Okay, but like Sam actually works with Rocky though. He does. He does. Yeah. Like the because blonde he's like hair, the head abs, empty, head empty. Yeah, yeah. He's really good. And then I just you also- know who should not be Rocky? Will, Will Schuster. Also, they made this episode also a commentary about EDs in men because like a lot of them guys had to had to be shirtless, <laughs> so they had like scenes of them like. Um, having body dysmorphia and stuff and I was just like this is a really important topic it just doesn't fit into Rocky Horror 
Yeah, there's a lot of issues they could have gone with. That would not have been on the list of ones that came to mind. Perhaps they could tackle that in a different episode. Yeah. One where Mr. Schuster was not shirtless. So true. Because I never wanted to see that. (laughs) Yeah. Trigger warning for anybody. Matthew Morrison. Menace to society. Menace. Oh. Anyways. Dolly and I have a running joke about the Ryan Murphy cinematic universe where everything Ryan Murphy does has this specific vibe where everything is being thrown at the wall. Mm-hmm. And for some shows, it works. Yeah. Like, maybe the Pose. beginnings... Pose. Pose. Yeah. And I was going to say the first, like, three seasons of... Yeah, the first few seasons. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes the Ryan Murphy cinematic universe is a very scary place to be because it is not working. Scream Queens. And Ooh, yeah. <laughs> hate that show. American Horror Stories. Oh, and yeah. Glee. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Glee so, so camp. <laughs> camp. Derogatory. <laughs> and also set in Ohio. Is it really? It is. Lima, Ohio. I forgot about that. Oh. Anyway, last fun fact about this movie. Uh, Peter Hinwood, who plays Rocky, but is not the singing voice of Rocky, um, is kind of an icon because he's admitted that he feels like he can't act, which I kind of agree with as we've already been over this episode. But also, he's definitely gay. He hasn't said it directly, but according to Wikipedia, he has a life and business partner, which is a euphemism for being gay. Slay. (laughs) I just, like, I was researching this movie, and I saw that wording, and I said, this is camp. (laughs) It's giving, and they were roommates. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they were roommates. And they were life and business partners. Yeah. <laughs> the business involved antiquing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on this podcast, we always rate our movies on two different scales. We rate it both on how much we like the movie and on how we felt the queer representation in the movie was. So let's discuss rating this movie out of 10, how much we like the movie. 20 out of 10. Yeah. I would give this movie a 10 out of 10 because it sparks joy. Yeah. It's a 10 out of 10. Like, I've never gotten bored watching it. That's so I can true. watch it over and over again. Stage, film, all of it. It's great. Multiple times per October. You put it on the TV. You force your friend who hasn't seen it to watch it. <laughs> Whatever it takes. You go see a live production. It's such a vibe. 10 out of 10. Yeah. Love it. Now we're going to rate this movie out of 10 on how queer we thought the movie was. I want to give it a 10 out of 10, but I'm going to give it a 9.5 out of 10 just because of the lack of POC representation in the main characters. That's the only reason. I like I maybe like 9.75 because I really want to give it a 10. <laughs> okay. 
I was going to give it like an 8 out of 10 because mm-hmm. it was a 10 out of 10 in 1975. That's But true. now it's 2022 and there's no people of color and it's definitely a portrayal of a person who could be interpreted as trans even though the character isn't like necessarily trans as like a predator which is really upsetting but alternatively like every single character in the movie is queer so that's pretty iconic yeah i was gonna say a nine out of ten because you know i do have to ding it a little bit because it can be a little not great in the area concerning frank and also with the, like, sexual assault, basically, that happens mm. is not great. We don't want to see gay people sexually assaulting people. That's not great. But Not a fun stereotype. No. Yeah. Very bad stereotype. Man, I didn't think about all that. I was just thinking about how much I enjoyed it in terms of queerness. I'm going to change mine to 9 out of 10. <laughs> but the rest of it, there like, is really good. Like... Like, look at Magenta and Riff Raff, like, and everybody else, basically. Like, Brad, Bisexual King, like, the rest of it's great. Yeah, that's true. So on this podcast, we always try to connect all the movies we watch into one long string of movies that are vaguely connected through maybe an actor in common, a plot point in common, a subgenre in common. So this week... This week, we are connecting through the Ryan Murphy cinematic universe because Rocky Horror has an episode on Glee, and our next thing is going to be another Ryan Murphy project. Excellent. So we will see you next week in the Ryan Murphy cinematic universe. And thank you so much to our lovely guest, Adrian Swan, who we love with our entire hearts Mm -hmm. on this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like I'm like part of me is like oh I wasn't like very contributive but I, don't I disagree. Know. Okay, that's just me telling myself. <laughs> I, I disagree. The Ryan Murphy and the Glee conversations are very important. <laughs> I was considering cutting them out, but I guess now I have to leave them in. Okay, thank you for joining us on this episode, and we will see you in two weeks. by Candlelight is a podcast hosted, created, and edited by Elizabeth Crane and Dahlia Kumar. Cover art by Dahlia Kumar. Music by Elizabeth Crane. Music recorded by Elizabeth Crane and Ryan Allegretti.